Good morning. Great, great to see you all and those of you who are watching online as well. Yeah, we're having a congregational meeting next week, Sunday, 4 o'clock p.m. We always check the football schedules and all that kind of stuff to make sure we put it on the right, right time and the right day. Um, I, I don't know uh, about the Packers. I'm sorry, I don't remember if we looked at that or not, but I think we did. Uh, so, uh, you know, you might think of the uh, congregational meeting as just a business meeting, and it, it is that, that is a part of it, but it's really, really a lot more than that. It's a gathering uh, together as a church family. And we do some worship, we do a business meeting, we have supper afterwards together, uh, we're going to have a taco dinner. You can read some of the details in your worship guide, and, uh, you know, just a reminder of what times and, and, and all of that. But it's a great opportunity as part of the congregational meeting. I, I get an opportunity. Sometimes we do it as a staff. This, this time I'm going to do it uh, uh, myself of, of letting you know some of the stuff that we're working on, some of the stuff behind the scenes, and you get an opportunity to, to hear about some things that are maybe happening that you're they're not even aware of, uh, a couple that I'm pretty sure you're not even aware of, but that are important to our life as a community. And so we'd love for you to be there. We have child care. We have also, you don't have to be a member to come to the congregational meeting, but only members vote. And so we do vote to affirm elders, board members, the budget for next year, that sort of thing. But we work through those things pretty, pretty quickly. So uh, we'd love, love for you to be there. And those of you who are members, uh, it's great if you're there. It's quorums, all, there's all that sort of thing. And it's part of being part of our community. All right? So I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the first page of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, as we say around here, understanding the Bible and our part in God's story doesn't have to be a mystery. There's mystery involved, but it doesn't have to be a mystery. It's not like it's, un, you know, can't understand it. And so we dig in each week. And right now we're in a series on the first page on Genesis 1, and there are so many great themes that are introduced through for that that go throughout the whole Bible, and so we're doing sermons and series within this series as we consider uh, this great, incredibly great uh, chapter. If you want to know what a what an incredible um, literary masterpiece it, it is, a literary masterpiece. You can go back to our first couple of sermons in this series, back to the weekend after Labor Day, and you can get caught up. All right, so one of the questions, uh, the question that actually that we're looking at for this week and next week is, what is the Bible all about? If someone asked you the question, what is the Bible all about? I haven't read very much of the Bible. What is it all about? Or if you were discipling your kids or uh, someone who's a new believer who doesn't know very much about Bible, maybe someone who's been in the Bible for a while but doesn't really have a sense of the whole, what would you say? How would you answer the question? What is the Bible all about? Now, there's not just one right answer, okay? So you can relax, like, get it wrong. I went out to dinner with some people last night, and they told me what they thought it's all about, and I said, I gave you the answer at the end, and you got it wrong. Uh, no, they, they didn't get it wrong. Uh, they, they had their own way of describing it. So there's a lot of ways of describing it, and there's a lot of good answers, though, that I think really fall a little short they, I mean, they're really good answers, but they fall a little short when it comes to really getting the scope of the Bible story, uh, the story of God. And sometimes some of the answers that we give, 
my critique of them would be that sometimes they are, um, they maybe spiritualize things a little bit too much. They don't talk about real world realities. And sometimes they individualize things a little bit too much. We make the story of the Bible about us. And we're included in it in a big way, but it's really not just about us. So I think uh, an answer, there's an answer that Bible-believing, Bible-loving people could give but don't give, kind of rarely give to it. And I really think it's at the core of what it's about, so that's one of the things that we're going to be talking about. One of the right answers to this question, by the way, and maybe you thought of it, is, well, the Bible's about Jesus. And that's our right answer because Jesus actually said the Bible is about him, right? <laughs> so it's a really good answer. But if you kind of, it kicks the can a little bit. So what is Jesus about? You might say, well, Jesus is about the gospel. And that's a fantastic answer because that's the thing he preached on the most often was the gospel of the kingdom would be the way that he oftentimes described it. But I'm kind of pushing a little bit more and I'm saying, okay, then what is the gospel of the kingdom about? All right. So that's the kind of answer that we're going for, and, um, and I think it's a really important question. It's an important question for new believers, maturing believers, an important question as we disciple the next generation, whether it be because we're leading in children's ministry or leading a small group in our students' ministry or leading a small group in our church or just we're in a small group and we're around kids uh, from our church and we have conversations about things. So we influence the next generation and we need an answer to this question that is a good and broad answer to the question. So um, I think it's, it's really important uh, that we do this and I'm lost my place in my notes because I was just kind of going, uh, why is it important? Uh, so, um, okay, so uh, that's what we're talking about. That's where we're going. I had something else I was going to say. I can't remember what it was, so let's go on. So why, why uh, is this important? I really want to go into a little bit more about why this is important, and I want to give you an analogy. Let's say, let's say I am uh, mentoring a person who's going to become a pastor. Uh, so this person is an apprentice, a pastor apprentice, and so... In doing mentoring, what you're going to do is you're going to uh, you're going to kind of open your life and what you do to the person, and they're going to watch, and then you're going to give assignments to do some of the stuff that you're doing, and then you're going to debrief those assignments, and you're going to answer questions, and you're going to do all of those kinds of things. Now, I know some some people think pastors just work on Sunday, and I always counter, no, we have a Saturday service, so I just work on Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> you know, uh, no pastors. Uh, there's a lot more to pastoring than preaching. I think most of you actually do know that. And uh, so I'm talking about when you're mentoring someone to be a pastor, it's not just about the preaching, it's about shepherding a congregation, it's about the spiritual practices of a pastor. So the pastor is not just talking out of their head, but you know, also from their heart. Uh, it's, it's about leading leaders and working with leaders and co collaborating with leaders, staff leaders, um, non-staff leaders, a board, the elders in our church, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, praying with people, praying with people who are going into surgery, praying with people who are, um, are dying, and then gathering the family together when people have died to celebrate their life in a way that glorifies God. So let's say I'm, I've got an apprentice, and after a couple of years, 
we stop and I say, okay, it's time to take stock of what you're learning. I want to, you know, don't tell me everything you're learning, but tell me some of the stuff that you've learned, what's really been really important. What do you think is most important about being a pastor? So it's part of the debriefing. And imagine the apprentice says, well, I've learned that the, the one thing that you spend the most amount of time on and seems to be the most important thing that you do and the thing that seems to lead to the most success for pastors is preparing and delivering sermons that people want to hear. And I'll say, I wait for the rest of the answer. <laughs> and uh, silence. And I say, anything else? <laughs> and the apprentice goes, oh, yeah, there's, there's other things. But I think the thing I really need to focus on more than anything else is to be able to prepare and deliver sermons that people want to hear. Now, assuming that I did a good job in mentoring, <laughs> you know, that I, I showed it's more than that, assuming that I showed it's more than that, and that the apprentice just missed it, I think most of us would say that the apprentice had kind of missed the point, kind of missed really, you know, been two years, like, can we even salvage this if that's all you got out of it? Now, certainly, preaching is one of the core things that a pastor does, and it is the most time-consuming thing in a church like ours. It's the most time-consuming thing. But it is, is it so important that you just kind of like uh, being shaped by God and the spiritual practices kind of are not that important compared to that, or spending time with people and working with leaders and pastoring and shepherding families, you know, that kind of thing. I don't, th I don't think so. I think everybody realizes that's a major miss by the apprentice. Now, when it comes to what the Bible is about and what Jesus, you know, what Jesus is about, what the gospel is about, I think our answers sometimes approximate that apprentice's answer, our imaginary apprentice. I think we, we focus in on a couple of things, oftentimes two or three things in a tradition like ours, and miss some really big things or the really big picture. Now, it's not that we're majoring on minors because I think the answers that many of you would give would, would be majors, you know, just like The Apprentice, okay? The Apprentice is not majoring on minors when he says that preaching is the thing. Uh, so it's a major. So it's not that our answers are oftentimes majoring on the minors, it's that we're often missing a major answer to that question of what the Bible is all about. And I really think, and I'll develop this a little bit more next week probably, I really think that when you look at the particular mess the church is in, in our day, and the church is always a mess, it was a mess, that's why we have epistles, the Apostle Paul and others writing to the messes uh, that were already the church, um, when you look at the particular mess in our day, the sea of people that are abandoning the faith and may not be any more than any other time, I don't know, social media may make it just feel like it's more. I think that what's often missing in our answer to that question is actually part of the problem. It's leading to part of the mess. So as we mentor the next generation as parents and all that, as church people with friendships and their friends and it's uncles and aunts, 
and all of that. I think, we need to, I think we need to have a good answer to that question. And not just that I can give the answer, but that when I talk about the Bible, when I talk about Christianity, I'm talking about it in these broad terms that the Bible actually presents. And you might say, don't we cover that in the story of God? Is that missing in the story of God? And I would say, no, I think we cover it pretty well in the story of God, a course that most of you have taken. Um, but are we getting it? Or are we just kind of defaulting to the way we've always talked about the Bible and the way that we always thought about Christianity, which oftentimes, unfortunately, is what in the Bible appeals to me, helps me succeed at accomplishing my goals in my life. There's more to it than that, and we need to get the more to it than that really down deep into our bones. All right, so we're going to pray for uh, God to illuminate his word to us, as we always do. This, uh, this prayer is based on Genesis 1, Isaiah 55, Psalm 19, Romans 1. Several of those thoughts are kind of come together in this prayer, so... Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, the whole creation, the skies and the land, the heavens and the earth, they declare your glory. Mountains and hills sing your praises. Trees clap their hands. There is so much we can know about you by marveling at what you have made. We also know you through your Son, and we can understand you by your Spirit. As we look to your word now, help us to know you better, shape our hearts and our minds to conform to Christ. Father, also on this international day of prayer for the persecuted church, we lift up to you all those around the world facing death and persecution because of their faith. So many. We pray for protection. We pray for comfort for those who have lost loved ones, loved ones who have died because of their faith in you. We thank you for our freedom of worship and for all places around the world that enjoy that same freedom. And Father, we thank you for our veterans, uh, for their service to protect our country as we approach Veterans Day this week. I pray that you bless them. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been doing throughout the series, keep your Bibles open because we are going to look at chapter one, a little bit, a few more verses in chapter one uh, after this. But we've been asking some of our younger five ochres to recite Genesis 1 1 for us. And so let's, let's watch. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. Awesome. So um, the first page of the Bible and the last page of the Bible, they explain this bigger picture that I'm talking about, what the Bible is all about, what Jesus is all about, what the gospel is all about. First page, last page, together describe it. So when we think of what the Bible is all about, the answer actually begins in the very first sentence, especially when you see it in light of that first sentence, in light of what comes afterwards in the rest of that page. So that first sentence, in the beginning, God created the heavens, and the earth. Two of the key words in that passage, I mean, they're all key words, the most important one being God, and we spent five weeks on that. Uh, but two of the key words in that, especially in this question of what is the Bible all about? What is God about in the Bible? What is Jesus about? What is the kingdom about in the Bible? What is the gospel about in the Bible? As we ask that question, two of the key words are heaven and earth. They're a major theme in the Bible. And these words and ideas swirling around heaven and earth hyperlink 
all over the Bible. You might remember, I don't know what, week two, I think it was, that we, we looked at this hyperlink math, map. And, you know, each one of these represents a book of the Bible, and each one of these really thin lines represents the hyperlinks that go throughout the whole Bible. And as I said earlier in the series, almost every word in the first sentence, and there's seven in Hebrew, almost every word in the first sentence is not as it seems. You might remember I compared it to the M. Night Shyamalan movies where everything's going along and then at the very end you find out, oh, it's not as it seems. And it's very much like that. And it's very much like that with these two words, heaven and earth. So we're going to spend some time today talking about these two words. And then we're going to watch a Bible project video at the very end that shows you the theme of these two words. It's big highlights and big high-level highlights throughout the Bible story and how they tell us, tied to these two words, what the Bible is all about. Uh, so I just, want to, I just want to warn you, a lot of what I'm going to be talking about is just what do these two words mean and some of the implications of those two words, and then we'll get to kind of the question, the big question. So the word heaven that you see in verse 1 is the same word in Hebrew for sky, same word that we would be used for sky, but it's plural. It says skies, and that's how it oftentimes occurs in, in the Hebrew Bible. It occurs as a sky. So Tim Mackey, uh, one of the Bible Project guys, he and uh, the other Bible Project guy, John, put together a 12-week Bible study on heaven and earth. And yes, I was tempted to spend 12 weeks on those two words, and it would be easy to do, easy to do. So, um, but I didn't succumb to the temptation. But this is how he describes why it's plural. So he says, Hebrew grammarians call this, this plural skies, a plural of extension, meaning the word is plural because the description, it's a description of something large or complex. It's a linguistic trick that works well in English too. By nature, the word skies connotes something grander than sky. It makes sense to think of the realm above as a vastness of things, not a single thing. And as you see how the Hebrew people looked at the skies, you, you see they saw a lot more than clouds and planets and stars and sun and moon. It was so much more than that. So in the Bible, sometimes this word just means sky. Oh, look at the bird in the sky. It would use this word. So if, you know, it would be like in English, I was saying, oh, look at, the, look at the Bible, or at least according to this translation, look at the Bible in the heaven, you know, that kind of a thing. So it's, that's, that's the word that's behind it. But at other times, it can refer to the highest places where God resides, more like our word heaven. Um, and then sometimes it can refer to in between, kind of where the birds fly, and the highest of heavens, and sometimes it says the heaven of heavens or the third heaven, or it describes, you know, kind of this way above everything. Uh, but sometimes it talks more about what's in between, where the stars and the sun and everything. So that word describes a lot of, a lot of things. The word earth is interesting too, because it, it's the word that we would use for land, the land that we live on, where our feet lie or you know, right underneath, you know, where, where we are right now. And so when we think of the earth, we think of a globe. It's part of the, 
the trick of translation. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What would they have heard? Would they have heard this? No. This is the first picture taken by a human holding a camera. One of the early, um, one of the early space flights. One of the, first, the first picture of the earth, the entire earth, not just a portion of the earth, but the entire earth from the sky. And, and so would they have thought of that? No, they didn't have that vantage point um, at that time. This is a very recent thing. You might remember the movie The Truman Show. Uh, so uh, some of you never seen it, especially if you're younger. Some of you didn't see it when it was out. So I'm going to show you a little clip from the trailer, one of the trailers, that pretty much summarizes the whole show. All right, so we can be on the same page. Let's watch that. 30 years ago, the Omnicam Corporation created the ultimate reality-based television experience, The Truman Show. Beginning with a child's birth, they set out to document an entire human life. Every single moment broadcast live to the world. They created his hometown of Sea Haven. All of it completely enclosed within the dome of the Truman stage. Cue the sign. And even though the Truman Show has become an international phenomenon, Truman himself has never learned the true nature of the world around him. It's television! Yes! Despite some close calls, every aspect of his life has been carefully scripted and meticulously crafted. But the one thing no one could predict was who Truman Burbank would grow up to be. Good morning! Morning! Oh, and in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. <laughs> All right, just an interesting concept, probably a bit of a commentary on reality television. I mean, there's, there's one scene that, that is just so hilarious and scary at the same time where they say, so you've tricked this person their entire life from the time they've been born to thinking that they are living, you know, and everybody's watching them. And they go, yeah. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> yeah. All right, so, of course, uh, Truman thinks... He's living in the world that we inhabit, all right? So, I mean, he's, he's gone to school, he's read books, he's read science books, he thinks of the world as we do, as part of a solar system and part of a galaxy and, and all of that. They haven't, like, given him a primitive idea of, of how everything works. He's had a normal life. It's just that everybody is in the show, you know, around him. He's no, he has no idea that he's living in a dome, okay? And, it's, and when he looks up, it's a dome that's made to look like sky and, and all those sort of things. It's just a gigantic screen, you know, that he lives in. So go way back to ancient times, uh, especially in the ancient Near East, to the time when Genesis was written to that area of the world. Even go back to Jesus and they most likely believed that when they looked up, they were looking up into what you might call a many-layered sky dome. At least that's the way that they described it, exclusively described it. Uh, to get a sense of how big the dome is, though, don't think of something like even on this show, you know. Think of something that can stretch for thousands of miles. Because, you know, in the time of Jesus, they, they knew they could travel thousands of miles in time of of Genesis, I don't know how far they knew, but certainly hundreds and hundreds of miles. So this would be a very, very big dome. Any kind of drawing of it or anything like that never does justice for what kind of a dome this would look like. 
So the idea is that if you uh, went far enough, you would come to the edge of land and you would come to a sea, an ocean. And if you would ride the ocean far enough, you'd probably, I don't know if they speculated on this, you'd probably come to the edge of the dome. You'd, you'd come to, to the edge of that, that dome. And so um, uh, you get kind of a sense of what that picture is like, even from reading Genesis 1, of an ancient idea of how it is. So look at verse 6 of Genesis 1. It says, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. Now, that might just seem really weird, but that actually is the conception or at least the way it was described in that day, that there was a water dome over and there was water all around the land and even water under the land. So God made the vault, the dome, and separated the water until the vault from the water um, under the vault from the water above it, and it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. So as you stand right where you are, wherever you are in this conception of things, or at least in this description of things, you, um, you look up and you see you see stars and you see planets and ancient astronomers knew the difference because planets zigzagged all over and had a whole different mathematical equation as to where they would appear and where they were going and they figured that out. And then there were stars that were more fixed in the sky and, and moved differently. And you had the sun rising and you had the moon and you had all those sort of things and they could predict, mathematically predict all of these, these kind of things. But the idea the way they described it was that it was embedded in this dome. The idea that these were out far, far, you know, in galaxies far away. There, there wasn't that, there wasn't that um, kind of conception anywhere. Uh, it was always described as kind of way, way up there, but not way, way up. Not, you know, millions of miles, not that, that, that kind of thing. And so also standing where you are, if you were to dig deep enough, and nobody had dug deep enough to really be able to confirm this, but the idea, the way it was described is if you dug deep enough, you would hit another ocean beyond the first waters that you would hit and all that. So it's not talking about digging a well. It's an ocean, a vast ocean that comes up in wells and springs and all that sort of thing. And then you've got this land mass that, that is on top of all of that. That's how it's described. So the land doesn't float. Nobody believed that a landmass could float, so they didn't know, but they would describe it as being kept up by columns or pillars um, underneath the land. And again, did they think it were real pillars? Who knows? Probably, probably not, but they spoke of it in those ways. So what's under the pillars? And what's beyond the dome? Well, they would probably describe that in terms of, well, beyond the dome is the place, if, if, if they were Israelites, the throne of God, and where you know, God resides in a special way, not that God literally sits on a throne, but that God, and then the other 
peoples of that time would say that's where the gods kind of have their, their world, and underneath, that's the place of the dead. And beyond that, there wasn't a whole lot of speculation as to how, you know, what was, what was beyond that. So in ancient times, remember, there were no telescopes. There was no models like uh, this um, that existed showing our solar system. Uh, this, by the way, it shows the relative actual sizes of the sun and the planets. Uh, this other one, the second one that I'm going to show you here, shows relative distances from the sun uh, all the way on the right, all the way out to here. So this is, there, there was no, you've got to realize there was no conception of this. And if you were to draw how the heavens and the earth looked, it would look something like this, the way it's described. So you've got landmass, um, place of the dead, waters, the waters above the firmament, waters above, and your sun, moon, stars, planets, all that sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of the conception that is the way that it was described. And so you can imagine if a teacher is teaching something about this, they could maybe draw it on sand or on a tablet or that sort of thing in school. And it's hard for us to enter into this, this world because we can't unsee what we've seen. We can't unknow what we know. Now, there's some people that feel they can, and they argue. Somebody told me after the service last night that she has a friend, that this is what she believes the earth is actually. This is, this is the universe. This is actually what it is. And you've heard of people who believe in a flat earth and, and all that, and that's kind of, she said, that's kind of a picture that she showed me, and she wants to convince me that this is what I should believe. But, but most of us can't unsee this and can't unknow this. So ancient people are not people like Truman, okay? Truman was living in a vast universe, but was actually living in a dome. These are people living in a vast universe, at least talking about where they lived as if it were a dome. All right, so uh, this way of describing things is replete in the Bible, like you see in Genesis 1. I'm just going to show you really quick. I didn't put this in the outline. It's too much information. Uh, but it talks about the edges or the ends of the land. Uh, and the land disk suspended over dark, abysmal waters, pillars that uphold the land over the waters, the waters surrounding the land disk. This is the language that is found in Scripture when it talks about the universe as we know it. And so I talked about this week three. We talked a little bit about science and creation and all that sort of thing. So just like the fact that people in ancient times believed that the mind was located in the heart and gut, and the Bible speaks of the mind as located in the heart and the gut. So also the Bible uses this language of a flat earth, dome, waters, talks, talks about it that way, and about the regions beneath the earth, it just uses the same language. And the Bible doesn't correct their conception of where the mind is located, and it doesn't correct their conception of the universe and the earth's position in it. You will not find a place where it says you are wrong 
And this is reality that doesn't, you won't find in the Bible. So some people point to this and say, this is why you can't trust the Bible. All right, that's the conclusion that some people come to. And there are a lot of people that grow up in the church, spend a lifetime in the church, and they're exposed to what I just shared with you, and they're very upset. They get exposed in a university classroom on world religions, or they get exposed in high school, um, or they get exposed in a documentary, or something like that. And they say, I've never heard this in church. And so they assume this is something new, you know, or people in church, they're ignorant, that they don't, they don't know this kind of stuff, and that's why I can't believe this stuff anymore. And they're, they're really totally unprepared to be able to, to speak about this because they haven't heard it. And it's actually part of the reason, um, it's part of the reason why I'm talking about it. Uh, in some churches, this is, this is not an appropriate sermon. This is not very inspiring. And you've heard me say this before. When else are we going to talk about this? Right? When else are we going to kind of have everybody together and be able to have a conversation about these sort of things? So um, you have people who, who kind of leave. Well, these days, we get their whole story because of social media. And, uh, you know, they leave the faith. And this is one of the things. This and picture, you know, kind of questions about suffering, human suffering, and human evil, and all that kind of thing. And why doesn't God do this or that, are some of the reasons people walk away from the faith, and they tell their whole story, uh, oftentimes on social media. I remember a few years ago, a worship leader from Australia who walked away from the faith, and, and he, he had this, this long post about why, and he said, he was raising some of these kinds of questions, and he would raise the question, and he'd say, why doesn't every, anybody ever talk about this? And he raises another question, why doesn't anybody ever talk about this? And he raises another question, and he did that about five times in his post. And as I'm reading it, I'm like, I think we talk about these things all the time. They've been talking about them for 2,000 years, you know, it's, and even beyond that. I mean, uh, the, the Bible talks about these things, and commentators in the Bible, and the church fathers, the early church fathers, and throughout history, we've been talking about these things. It's, you didn't know. You didn't know. And so, you know, kind of one of my things I say every once in a while, especially if I get a bunch of high schoolers together, like when I do the story of God for them every couple of years, there's going to come a point where you're going to get hit with questions that we didn't cover. It doesn't mean that there aren't, that there aren't people who have dealt in detail with some of these questions. Now, it doesn't mean that once you cover it, nobody has any doubts. It's, it's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is, is that we're not all in the dark in the church, like ignorant. And these, these are big, big questions, and we talk about these questions, and people have talked about them for years and years. So what I'm going to share with you is not in the printed notes. It's something that I added uh, later. Uh, so write fast if you're taking notes and find some space for it. All right, so here's what do we do with this ancient cosmology and science that seems to be embedded in the Bible? There are three broad approaches. I'm sure there are more. I mean, I could add the flat earth kind of ex experience to this, and this is the first time I've ever done this. 
So I would appreciate feedback. And you can say, well, I think you missed this whole thing, or I think this one should be really broken up into two or three different groups. All right, so I'm going to give you three broad positions. The first position that some people hold is that the Bible is really only about matters that deal with faith and practice. So things that have to do with what we believe about God and how we should live our lives. And that's what inspiration is about. Now, we don't hold to this position in our church. And most churches of our kind that believe in the inerrancy of Scripture don't hold to this position. And one of the main reasons we don't hold this position is because the Bible doesn't seem to agree with this position. The Bible claims more for itself than it's only speaking to matters of faith and practice. It claims to speak truth in everything that it speaks to, historically and um, in every way. Now, you take into consideration, I, I need to say this so you understand, you take into consideration that certain genres, literary types, you know, are meant to be taken figuratively and all that sort of thing and poetry and apocalyptic and all that sort of thing. All right. So this is, uh, uh, our response to this is not a simplistic anything it says. You take literally, you know, the Bible itself doesn't mean to be taken literally in everything it says, but everything that it does affirm, we would believe it's true. But history, science, about everything. So that's one position. The second position, a uh, broad position, would be the Bible is really, when it uses these scientific terms, it's only speaking figuratively. So for example, if it talks about the mind being in the heart, we speak that way, right? We oftentimes use language like, I'm thinking from my heart. And it's when we want to try to bring emotion out and all that sort of thing. And some people who hold to this view also suggest that the ancients were only speaking figuratively. That they actually didn't, um, didn't speculate. They, they, they weren't like, yeah, what is this? No, they, they had myths of the dome, and they, had, and they just used those in talking, but they really, you know, they were concerned with more matters of the mathematics of how everything works, and they, they just didn't even conceive of anything beyond this, so they, they just, they didn't theorize about it. And so when the Bible is talking this way, it is only speaking figuratively. So it's not meant to be taken literally that the heart, that the mind is found in the heart. There's a third position that's going to sound a lot like this one, but it's a little bit more. This is kind of the position I took on week three, that God condescends or accommodates to our level of understanding in order to communicate to us. But I need to add this. He never claims in Scripture that the earth is flat or the mind is located in the gut or any of those other kinds of things. It's not the claim that's being made. It's just accommodating. It's speaking in the language and understanding of the people in that day. And if he were to communicate to us today, he would do the same thing. He would communicate in language that makes sense, even though science in the next hundred years will change significantly. You know, things that we think we're just absolutely certain about, we're, we're, we're going to think we're like myths compared to what we might think hundred years from now. And that'll just keep happening, you know, over, over time. So, um, uh, along these lines, in this uh, position, um, it would say that God never claims that the earth, for example, was created in six 24-hour periods. Uh, that's not what is being communicated in Genesis 1. It has a different purpose. 
a different way of understanding it. And, and way before modern science, there were thinkers, early church fathers, that believed Genesis 1 was not about a literal six-day creation. So it's not something that just science has raised those questions. Now, um, those are three broad positions. And the second and the third you'll find represented in our congregation, whether you could articulate them before now or not, you'll find those. And we say, you know, have at it. That's good. We're not going to try to convince you. And my first rendition, so that third position is the only one that's in the outline, for example. And I realized, ah, that's prejudicial. That's like saying, this is what you have to believe. And it's not, it's not exactly so. So the whole idea of what's called divine accommodation is hotly debated in theological circles. Please forgive me, I'm going to get a little bit more nuanced here for a moment. Uh, but I appreciate how J.I. Packer uh, puts it. Um, you've got a long quote, and we were going to put it up here. I'm just going to skip that right now. But basically, he says, a lot of times God talks to us like a parent uses baby talk to talk to a child. All right. And so we just need to realize that. Um, but let's, let's get the second slide, Packer slide, up there because there is something that I want you to see. Um, so right here. God sets himself before us in this way to draw out in us, that word is missing, worship, love, and trust. Even though conceptually, we are always like the young children who hear their parents' baby talk and know the talker only in part. And so the key phrase there is, why is God doing this? It's to draw us out in worship, in love, and in trust. So there are a couple things that I want you to take away from this. And the first one is this. People have been wrestling with these things for centuries. When you hear something that seems to be a new idea, that seems to be undermining your faith as you understand it, it's... I can almost guarantee you it's not a new idea. It's not a new idea that, oh, nobody has had to face the, this question because of where we live, where we're situated now. Just because you've not heard about something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. And some of the things that people think, nobody is talking about these things, there were literally hundreds of thousands of pages written over history on those topics. Second thing, God's primary purpose this is my second takeaway. God's primary purpose in speaking to us on our level is for what Packer talks about here. It is for worship, love, and trust. It's about bringing him greater glory, loving him more, putting our trust and our faith in him. Uh, we need to know about him. We need to know about our world. And he condescends to us, he accommodates to us, to cause us to worship him, to love him, and to trust him. And when you think about week two, I think, of our mini-series on God, all the transcendent ways, maybe, yeah, week two, all the ways that God is so beyond us, so incredibly beyond us, what an incredible act of love, what an incredible act of grace that he does this for us, uh, that he would care about us so much that he would want us to love him more deeply, to worship him 
because we, he's made us to be worshipers, and we waste our worship on things that are not worthy of worship. We waste our worship on things that will destroy our lives. And he's like, no, here, here is what you were made for, and here is where there's glory, and here's where I will share my glory with you, and here is where health is, and here's where all that is good is. And that he does that so that we will trust him, trust him more. What an incredible act of grace that he would do that. All right, so I'm going to skip the next section in your outlines um, and just look at the last section, the epic story of the skies in the land. So next week, we're going to explore the answer to that question, what is the Bible all about in greater detail? It's heaven and earth is going to be a major part of that. And, uh, and we're going to look at some of the themes that run through the Bible at a very high, high level. And so to prepare you for that, and you're going to watch this again before you participate in your small group this week, and uh, it's in your questions in your um, sermon application guide. Um, Tim Mackey answers the question from his perspective with his words of trying to, and I think he grabs what this bigger picture is, although there be a lot of different ways of talking about it, but he says, the union of heaven and earth is what the Bible is all about. I'm not saying this is the only right answer. This is a way, an answer that we oftentimes never talk about with our kids, with our high schoolers, with our college students, with each other in our small groups. We don't, we don't talk in these terms, and I think we need to talk in these terms more often. We need to think in these terms. It needs to become part, like it goes deep into our thinking and our worldview, all right? So we're going to watch the video, and then we'll begin our time of response to God's Word. Let's go. In the Bible, the ideas of heaven and earth are ways of talking about God's space and our space. So I understand our space really well. We live here. There's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of spaces. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting is that in the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but this idea of heaven and earth overlapping, we don't talk a lot about that. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart and about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning, where heaven and earth, they're completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity dwelt together perfectly, no separation, and, and humans then partner with God in building a flourishing, beautiful world, and so on. But as humans, we wanted to do things a different way. We wanted... God out, and we wanted to create a world apart from him. Yeah, so we have these two spaces now. And the Bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a, a clear distinction. So you've said that these spaces can overlap, though. So explain how that works. Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth uh, overlap. 
Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice and beauty. But human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results. So how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're in conflict with each other? This was resolved through animal sacrifice. Yeah, that's kind of weird. What do animal sacrifices have to do with this? Yeah, the the idea is this. Animal sacrifices, somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place. And it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. But you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth reuniting. Right. So we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now, this word dwelling is really curious. Literally, it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth overlap. What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe, clean space. He's running around, hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses and forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite heaven and earth. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about as being a temple. He's also talked about as being the temple sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited like animal sacrifices. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more of heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's space to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn that Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible's story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of a city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's space and human space completely overlap once again. 
All right, so there's a lot of information packed in there. We're going to unpack some of that uh, next week. But as we begin our response to God, uh, which is our third movement in our worship, as we stop and we respond, we begin to respond here together to what we've heard from his word. I I do want to call attention to that last part of that video. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every time we celebrate communion, we're remembering that. Because it was at the Passover meal where a lamb, a sacrificed lamb, had saved the Israelites' firstborn um, as the death angel comes into Egypt. It's at the celebration of that meal that Jesus takes the bread of that meal and he takes the cup of that meal. And he said, this was, basically says, this was pointing to me all along. The, the reason that a lamb can make you right to be able to go into a temple is not because a lamb's dying can make you right, but because the lamb was always pointing to God's son coming to this earth and dying for our sins. And it's in the very description of what the Bible says about communion. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Scripture tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, the day when heaven and earth are reunited. Father, thank you. Thank you for this grand plan that includes us, that includes forgiveness, that includes justification, being made right with you, being made righteous. It includes being in Christ, union with Christ. It includes so many of the things that we talk about, this grand plan that you have. Help us to live in that reality, that it would shape our lives at work with our friends our entertainment, our rest, everything that we do when we leave here, that we would continue to respond to you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.